Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today on the show, I speak with Ed Liu, who is the host of Psychedelic Milk, which is the number one podcast for psychedelics. It's a really good podcast if you're interested in psychedelics, and I would recommend checking it out. Ed's also a great guy who I've had the pleasure of getting to know in person when we discovered that we were both podcasters in similar fields. We got together for lunch in Hong Kong and got to know each other and We've just since stayed in touch and I've been on his podcast and now he's on mine. And we share a number of common interests, not only psychedelics, but also yoga and meditation and consciousness studies and Jordan Peterson, all of which we touch on in our conversation. Ed is a yoga teacher himself. So you might also want to check him out on Instagram at Edward Liu Yoga. That's L-I-U for Liu. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ed. He's a great guy and, and I enjoyed, I always enjoy talking to him. So before I cut to our talk, I just want to ask folks in the audience, if you are enjoying the podcast, if you would consider giving to the podcast on patreon.com slash hacking the self, we've had increasingly more people be willing to give. And it's so nice to see just that engagement with the show, even just $2 more a month. Will give you not only early access to episodes, but it really makes a big difference in terms of being able to fund the production costs of the show, which include, for example, outsourcing the production to a professional production company so that I can produce high audio quality for you all. And as well, just sort of the time that goes into researching and setting up and then recording these interviews. So would appreciate it very much if you'd consider making a contribution if you've been enjoying the show on patreon.com slash hacking the self, or you can support the show in, in other ways, you know, writing a review on iTunes takes two minutes and it's a huge help for, you know, boosting the visibility of the show or also on Stitcher or Google music, whatever your favorite podcasting platform is sharing the conversations on social media or telling friends and family is also a great thing to help get the word out. So with that said, those would be wonderful ways to support the show. And I'd always love to hear from people. You know, you can contact the show at Hacking the Self on Twitter. Hacking the Self at gmail.com is the other way. And the Hacking the Self Facebook page is yet another. But I really would just love to hear what you're enjoying about the show, constructive criticism, suggestions for guests, what you'd like to hear more of, less of. Very open to people's input. And it's just always nice to hear from people, you know, as a podcaster, it's something that you really do in isolation and it is, you don't see, I don't do video records, so don't even see the guests when you're recording it and certainly don't see your audience. And it's rare to hear from people. So it's, it's always nice to just sort of occasionally hear from people and, and hear what they're enjoying about the show, or maybe also hear their suggestions on, on how they might add something or change something, something else. So I'm really open to people's input. And if you're willing to share it, I'd love to hear from you. So with that said, I want to thank you for listening so much. And now I give you my conversation with Ed Liu, host of Psychedelic Milk. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. So yeah, man, I'm I'm good. Things are humming along here. How are you doing? How's life? I'm okay, man. Back in Hong Kong. When did you get back, by the way? I got back in the I guess second week of March, something like that. 
I was struggling, man. And you were I wasn't struggling having... in Hawaii? No, I mean, and well, I mean, I got or, thrown or into in chaos. Hong Kong, you mean? I mean, you could argue both, but I got thrown into chaos is pretty much what happened. I mean, I threw myself into chaos, right? But it's something that I feel like I had to do. I don't regret any, any of it, but it's not an easy transition when you're transitioning from job to job, especially when you're changing industries and you're moving countries at the same time. I guess the country part, not really, but then I had a place I was living in and the rental contract expired, right? So I thought it'd be a good chance for me to go back to the States for a while and take a little break after I quit my job. And when I came back, I lived in a hotel for about two weeks. That was not fun. And then I rented a service apartment, which I'm in right now. In the meantime, trying to find work, trying to find places that would accept my, you know, just my being, I guess, you know, because I feel like in a job interview or whatever, it's more than just, you know, your resume. It's like they want to accept who you are into their team. So, you know, I'm going through that. And next week, I'm actually going to move in with my teacher who has been, you know, super nice to me. And so he's offering a room at his place because he's moving into a new place for relatively cheap rent. So I'm going to be living with him. And I think my yoga is going to skyrocket with that because, you know, I'll just be pretty much training with him and myself and getting mentorship from him one-on-one -on, -one on that level. So yeah, we, we've been working on some new things already, like in terms of yoga and stuff like that. And when I move in with him, it's going to be even more, you know, like, because we're going to have so much time together. And so I'm kind of looking forward to that. And I'm excited for that because I won't have to pay an arm and a leg to live in a, like literally like a hundred to 200 square foot service apartment, which, which is where I'm at right now. So, you know, I guess a week or two ago, like I was, I was so depressed, man. I mean, it, it's not fun going through this because you don't know where you'll be. There's a lot of uncertainties and you don't have a set schedule. Everything is thrown off tra track. You don't have any order in your life. Of course, there's no money. So, you know, it hasn't been easy, but I'm trying to find the lessons that are coming from the time that I'm going through right now and integrate it into the future. But I think things are turning better now as time goes on. I guess two weeks ago, I was like, you know, I was, I was in a dark place, man. <laughs> I mean, you know what, man? I think it's a combination of things, right? So first of all, I'm in an unfamiliar place. And then I've been, you know, I've been balls deep into Peterson and I read his book and that really changed everything, right? I mean, I've been familiar with his work for a couple of years now, but then I haven't really soaked myself in his teaching 100% until I read his book. And then I read more Carl Jung and Shosinista uh, and those works and, and um, Freud and he explicitly warned people, right? Like, you know, if you're going to read these books, they're going to change who you are. So I didn't, I didn't believe him at first. So I read the books and I'm still reading them. And man, like it is changing who I am fundamentally. I think it's forcing me to take a look at myself in a really truthful manner in a fashion that I haven't done before. 
And it's really painful, you know? It's like really, really painful because those things you have been avoiding throughout your entire life because you don't want to face those things, you know? Like you you look at those things, the problems that you might have, the fuck-ups that you've done before. And so, you know, it's just when you're faced with the truth and you're not ready for it and the truths are unwelcome truths, it, it's really tough and it's necessary at the same time, you know? And it's a process that I think I would have to go through anyway because... I need to grow the hell up <laughs> and, and stop playing games with myself. And this has kind of been like a psychedelic journey in and of itself because, yeah, I mean, I'm not taking any ayahuasca or mushroom at the time being, but I'm faced with these conundrums that I have to deal with in my life. And I have to actually take action in order to make a change or to make my life better. And that's really where everything is clear as day and I have to fix it. I actually have to put in work. I have to, you know, do the action to change my life. And it's not easy, you know, it's not easy at all, but it is what's happening because, you know, throughout this process of psychedelic awakening, I guess you would call it, a lot of psychedelic authors or speakers, they only tell you about these grand philosophies that they conjure in their psychedelic trips but nobody tells you how to live your life right nobody tells you what to do with that knowledge people tell you about the machine elves and and how culture is bad and i love mckenna but a lot of things that he says can be really deconstructive and there's nobody to build that structure back for you up again so you can make your life better so i think it's really dangerous for me before to solely listen to the deconstructive ideas of culture or society or personality and how we don't identify with ourselves truly as who we are. And I think Peterson's role in my life is to here to build that back up again, to really build me as who I am and to use culture, use society and use the structures around us to make life better. And this is where I think it's really helpful and the reason why I'm still reading Peterson and those books is because I feel like having that mindset will build me into a tougher human being and also understand the world better and understand myself better in that sense. You know what I mean? So it's not, it hasn't been easy, man. But I think this is a process that one has to go through in order to become a better person. And this is my time. It's really interesting to talk to you about this right now. And I can totally get where you're coming from as someone who's read a lot of Peterson. You know, since we talked, you've been into him a lot longer. You know, I got into him, I guess, after we spoke, you know, sometime around October. But in that limited period of time, I've really taken a deep dive into his work and I've had a lot of time to do so. So that's helped. But I mean, I've done, I would say, about half of his Maps of Meaning class online. I've done about half of his Personality and Transformation class. I've read the whole book, his new one you're referring to. I've seen some, listened to a lot of other podcasts, including biblical lectures from his podcast and other ones he's done. So I can get where you're coming from. I know ideas you're referencing. And I also find the interesting thing for me is how in some ways he provoked a lot of new ideas for me, but in a lot of ways he, he was building more coherence on ideas that I, I was already familiar with. And to hear what you just described about what he's helping you to realize and the way that relates to, for example, psychedelics, 
It's very interesting for me because this was something that I'd started to appreciate before Peterson through yoga and through Tantra. But then Peterson talked about as well as this idea of the balance between order and chaos. And of course, as you know, Peterson himself says, it's archetypal, you know, so it appears in all the world's religions. He talks more about Old Testament. But, you know, when I actually, and this is going to re- relate to psychedelics, when I spoke to the Austin Psychedelic Society, and I wasn't that into Peterson at that point. I didn't know enough about him to even know this was really his thing. But I gave a talk on precisely what you're describing here. And I talked about the importance of when we're using psychedelics, the importance of intention, right? We talk about intention a lot, right? Intention is a big thing in Buddhism or intention is also important in other forms of yoga. Just to be intentional how we use these tools and to recognize they're kind of tools for personal growth rather than just recreation and to have that intention. And also to integrate the experience afterwards and and Jung provides a really wonderful framework for integration. And I think there's so many wonderful synergies and that's why a lot of a lot of teachers who are into Eastern philosophy are also into depth psychology and Jungian philosophy because a lot of that work is very similar. But I think we can think about psychedelics as it's very helpful to think about it in terms of that order chaos paradigm, right? Psychedelics are a form of Shakti, right? We would say in Tantra, right? They're a form of energy. They're dynamic, right? They're chaos. They'll break things up. And that's great because too much order, it leads to inertia, right? It leads to complacency and we need to shake things up. But the problem is when we have too much chaos, right? That leads to its own host of problems either. And Peterson really talks about how to strike that balance. Um, And that's what a lot of these traditions are getting at. That's what yoga is getting at. That's what Buddhism is getting at. And so I think it's totally natural and healthy in what you're describing. And I think it makes sense a lot now where you are in life, man. And I'll preface this by saying it, it all goes in cycles, right? We all have periods where we're more in and out of this stuff. But you being in your late 20s, I mean, I think this is a common period where people go through this a lot. And you've been through so much and you've had these wonderful experiences that have kind of broken you open, but now you've got to provide some coherence. You know, you've got to build yourself back up and assemble yourself into something new. And you're at that point where you're realizing that. So that's a great place to be, but scary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about responsibility as well. And it's scary. It is scary because, well, you have to be responsible about your life and that's something that a lot of people don't want to do because it means that you're going to be a lot more stressful in the next coming years to come. And a lot of people in the psychedelic communities don't want to have responsibilities, you know? I mean, still to this day, a lot of people want to carry this 60s mentality of just live free and die and just be happy and follow your bliss and all that bullshit, you know? But nobody tells them that's bullshit because you could be happy this minute but next minute it could be diagnosed with cancer so where's your happiness now if that's your goal then you're fucked so a lot of people would avoid responsibility just to live blissfully especially like in our communities and when you hear that enough times you'll actually follow that advice and i think it's quite dangerous because it it makes us irresponsible not only to other people but to ourselves as well And when you start actually take on that burden of responsibility and get things done and actually follow the things that you want, not to make you happy, 
but to find some meaning in your goddamn life, then things will start to click. And it's a it's a really long process, it's a slow process, but I think it's something that's ultimately worth it because you're actually gonna find something that you'll care about at the end of the day instead of just searching for that blissful moment that is right now. I mean, of course, I think it's important to, you know, be in the present moment and live in a now as Eckhart Tolle would say, but it's also important to plan for the future because, you know, if you cared so much about the future or the now, you would also care about the future because it's coming. I mean, that's one of the the only knowns that we know. It's like the future is coming, right? So why not plan for that? Why not be responsible for something? Why not get our act together? But a lot of people in the psychedelic communities want to negate that fact. And the more I do interviews with people, the more I talk to people on Instagram that are from the psychedelic community, I find that a lot of people are not balanced and they're living this life where they're taking advice from the wrong people. And the more I listen to Peterson or Carl Jung or Freud, the more I find the balance that I need in my life because you know, I've been listening to the new agers for too long or the psychedelic leaders for too long where they give you really shit advice on how to live your life. And many of them are delusional. And when you wake up to the fact, it seems like it's almost like you've been in a cult for five years and now you're just getting out of the cult and you realize all this shit they have done wrong and you're overcompensating <laughs> for the fact that you've been in a cult for five years. So you're extra rational. And maybe that's what's happening to me because I wouldn't say that I was in a psychedelic cult, but I definitely believed a lot of these new age thinkers and their philosophy of life. And when I follow that to the utmost extent, it has devastating consequences for my life. And the proof is in the pudding because it's gotten me to this place where I'm now, where I'm in total chaos. And I'm not blaming those people for their advice. I'm blaming myself ultimately for being that stupid to follow those advice. But I think there's also a lot of people that can be a, a gullible person like myself that follows those advice and leads them astray. So, you know, I think a lot of people tell me that when you get to your 30s or late 20s, you hit the Saturn return or something like that in astrology, and there will be big changes in your life. And I see that happening to a lot of people in their late 20s or early 30s where drastic change would come. And maybe it's true. <laughs> and I think this is what's happening to me right now is this this change of attitude, this shift of almost awareness of where I am and where I should be and how I should act in a practical manner because nobody teaches me that ever. I mean, McKenna tells you about these magical worlds and he's a great speaker and he can bring you to this place of awe with words, but he doesn't teach you actually how to apply those wisdom and skills into making your life into a better place. So I think Peterson's coming to my life at this great point and maybe that's why i gravitate to him so much just because like i need this i really need this wisdom yeah there are a couple of things to say there i mean just for people in the audience who might not be as you know well versed so you're referring to terence mckenna right he's a very yeah famed psychedelic advocate yeah i think he's more of a better speaker than he's a philosopher you know a lot of people give him credit for his ideas and 
his ideas are fun, you know. Like I think there's they're, they're fun, they're entertaining, they captivate the audience, they get clicks <laughs> in, in in today's age, you know. But do they actually make that much sense? It's debatable, you know. So I know I'm gonna gonna get a lot of heat for this because there are so much McKenna fans out there that are from the psychedelic communities, but you know, I just gotta tell the truth because while his ideas are fun, are they correct? I mean, that's a really good question to ask. And the question, I mean, the answer is, I don't know. I mean, some are and some aren't. And I just choose to be more cautious these days when I take advice from, you know, these leaders. Yeah, I was, the first thing I was going to do was, aside from drawing that distinction, I was going to actually tout a different approach and a different McKenna. I actually, I've never gone down the Terrence rabbit hole. I've, I've listened to him and I think he's interesting. I've enjoyed some of his talks and I thought some of them were brilliant and right on, but I, I don't know. I guess, you know, he didn't totally flip my switch or whatever, but I really like Dennis McKenna a lot and I actually resonate more with him. And I had him on the podcast. I believe you've had him on as well. And, you know, what I like about Dennis a lot is that I think De Dennis is a scientist, you know, Terrence is the artist and perhaps like a lot of artists, he's has a flair for the dramatic and a flair for hyperbole as well. And you'll hear Dennis, you know, even say that so much. It's obviously no secret that much of what Terrence said was hyperbolic. But I really like Dennis in the fact that he's that scientific approach, which um, admits to what we know and don't know. And I think that Dennis does a really nice job of integrating kind of these mindsets between ancient and modern in East and West, you know, and kind of, I guess, if you could say indigenous and modern as well. But, you know, he's obviously someone who's a big advocate of science and he has that kind of rational and also skeptical approach. Well, here's what I can say we know and don't know. And he's cautious about drawing conclusions. But on the other hand, he recognizes that there's just certain things that the Western scientific model can't explain, that the rational mind can't explain everything, that he's comfortable resting in a place and not knowing. And so I do think there's a McKenna who really does a, a nice job of, of striking that balance. I just don't think it's the one who gets as much celebrity as the other one. And it's not a knock on Terrence, it's praise of Dennis, you know. Yeah, because I think Terrence is a great speaker and he captivates the audience well. He's like Ramdas, you know, like they're both great speakers and they know how to work a crowd. They're almost like comedians almost where they know what to say and the crowd would react and people resonate towards that. And people like charisma more than the content, I feel like. I mean, you know this, you're a yoga teacher, right? And you see a lot of shitty yoga teachers <laughs> that teach the wrong things, but they're charismatic and they get a lot of students. And it's the same thing I think here where I'm not saying Terrence is a shitty teacher, not by any means, but I mean, there are a lot of things that he says that are wacky. Like he said, the world's gonna end in 2012 or whatever, or he, he thinks that the I Ching has like the secret to the universe or something like that. And, you know, I mean, obviously those are nonsense and you shouldn't buy into those things, but. Back to the point, though, I think a lot of people would almost worship him as a guru, where he specifically said that don't worship gurus, worship plants, which I think it's another hyperbole as well. But it's almost like the psychedelic community is a little cult in and of itself without an actual leader. And people like to worship these medicine, these plants, these gurus. And I just made a 
little meme yesterday about the finger pointing at the moon. And a lot of people in the psychedelic communities like to look at these plants or fungi or LSD and make that the ends to all means. So they think that these drugs can actually bring you to the truth where, and they are the truth. But what I think is that these drugs, these psychedelics, they merely only point to you in the direction of the truth sometimes. And it's up to you to do the work to actually walk that road to find the truth instead of seeing the truth and realizing that's what it is and just forgetting about it, which I think a lot of people do. A lot of people are aware of the truth, but they, they don't actually walk towards the direction of truth. Does that make any sense to you? It makes total sense. In fact, a lot of the language you're using is very much, once again, resonating with some of the things I said in that talk in Austin and, and how I also think about this topic. And, you know, when I chose to go down to Peru, I lost I did it in a retreat center that was run by a woman who's a spring washroom, who's a very experienced Buddhist teacher. And so there's a framework there, not only the framework of Buddhism, but there's also, you know, the indigenous people of Peru, they use psychedelics within a framework. It wasn't psychedelics are a tool. They're not the path. And that's the difference is people think that they're, but meditation for is a tool. Yoga is a tool. All these things are tools along a larger path but it is not a path in and of itself. And that's what throws people off. And Ramdas, who you alluded to, is a great example. Yes, he's like charismatic like Terence, but there's a huge difference between Ramdas and Terence. Right. But even Ramdas said, in order for the tool to work, you have to be trapped by it, right? Or something like that, which is a great quote, by the way. I think you referenced that last time and I, I'd like to see it. And I think that's true for a period of time. But I think Ramdas would also ultimately agree with what the Buddha said, which is in Buddhism, there's the metaphor of crossing the river and the Dharma being the raft. Those are the teachings that get you across the river. But once you're across the river, you don't need to keep carrying the raft. You don't need to hold it on your back. It doesn't need to weigh you down. You can let go. You can let go of the technique. And that's an interesting discussion as well, which we can come back to around the extent to which it brings up the whole, when you get the message, hang up the yeah. phone. One, people love to quote. actually have issues with that. And I, I think Dennis- Is that a mechanic quote? Yeah, that's an Alan Watts quote. Okay. But Dennis said to that, you know, I keep learning things my whole life. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I know some really great Dharma teachers who feel the same way. And I want to give a good example with Ramdas because I know for him, he continued to use psychedelics a little bit because they had value to him. But the big difference between Ramdas and Terrence McKenna and between Ramdas and his counterpart, Tim Leary, is that Leary and I guess Terrence... For based on what you're saying, I'm not familiar enough with his work, but certainly Leary confused the tool for the path. And Ramdas got into, you know, he found a spiritual tradition. He continued to occasionally use psychedelics. He continues even to this day to totally advocate and say that psychedelics have an important role to play. But he recognized, he found out that they're just a tool, right? They're not the ultimate answer in and of themselves. And I think the path that Ramdas got on, it showed him a lot of things, but what it ultimately showed him was how to integrate those experiences. And it also taught him about love. It taught him about ultimately it's about serving others. And you don't 
it's very easy to, you can get that message from psychedelics, but once again, if you don't have a means to integrate it, which of course, all of these indigenous communities who are using them did, they were doing it within a larger structure and had a way to integrate it. You're not necessarily getting to that, that message and it can lead to a sort of self-indulgence and narcissism rather than a form of, you know, service and connection to larger community. Yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons why I brought that up is because there's this been there's this ongoing debate now in the psychedelic communities about whether LSD is the true samadhi or the false samadhi because Osho came out, I think, in a Netflix documentary saying that LSD is the shortcut to the false samadhi. And I think a lot of psychedelic people got riled up and said, oh my God, Osho, what an asshole and things like that. And, you know, I posted this on my Instagram trying to spark a dis discussion. And of course, there are two sides to this and people are fighting for one side and the arguments got heated. But ultimately, I think I agree with Osho because I don't think that a psychedelic drug can offer you true samadhi at 20 bucks a pop. If, if that's the case, then all the psychonauts out there would be truly in samadhi. And that's really not the case because the psychonauts that I know are some of the most unbalanced people on earth. And there's no way that they could be in samadhi states just from taking acid. It's like, it's like this Western mentality where you think taking something, a pill, a magic potion can make you into something else without doing any of the work. So all you have to do is take this LSD and you'll achieve true samadhi. I mean, you, if you really think that, it comes that easily, then you're truly delusional. And those are the same people that mistake the LSD for the truth instead of the tool that shows you the truth. And it is your job after that and your waking reality to go towards Samadhi. And there are moments where I was on mushroom and I thought I was in true Samadhi. And I think that is true. Like there are some moments here and there where you realize true samadhi and you have that little moment of bliss however you don't stay there forever you snap out of it obviously self-evidently i mean we're here talking today so is it true samadhi i really don't think so what do you think about that so it's an interesting question one thing that it posits is it, it obviously the way you phrase it privileges samadhi right and it assumes that samadhi is the ultimate state which is kind of the potentially classical yoga view yes and I think that's very questionable, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think that's very questionable. Yeah, it's valid. I think it's valid. Yeah, I think so. I think that's questionable. I think there's a larger paradigm that exists within Indian thought, which kind of stretches from the Upanishads up through even a lot of forms of tantric Shaivism. And in the paradigm goes and includes Buddhism, it goes something like this bondage liberation, right? We are bound by the things of this world, whether it's the, the, you know, our desires that keep us going round and round in the cycle of samsara, but we're bound and we need to break free of that. We need to be liberated. And there's an argument among people in these various schools who are all within this paradigm, whether it's Advaita Vedanta, Buddhist, Kashmir Shaivites, that you can get to a point that you can return to some kind of singularity where you are able to, you know, whether you want to call it you've reached enlightenment or whatever, you have some kind of realization that is totally then sustainable, then 
through the rest of your life. And once you've had that realization, it's kind of a moment at which you don't go back. I think that model is something that's really taken for granted by a lot of Western practitioners who adopted. Of course, many Asians happily adopt it, but that's, you know, it's their culture. I think they're they're Westerners who are very skeptical of other things, yet they've come to sort of unquestionably incorporate this viewpoint. I think that itself is is debatable. I think what's far more healthy, and this is the ultimate proof in the pudding. This is the test for psychedelics. It's the test for yoga. It's the test for meditation. It's the test for anything else. You know, it's that classic Houston Smith statement, altered traits, not altered states. So how do you actually behave in your day-to-day life? How do you behave when no one's looking, right? And how do you behave most of the time? So it's it's not a question of, is your mind ever going to wander? Are you going to come back to your sense of self? Are you going to have thoughts? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get jealous? Look, if you're going to put someone up on a pedestal, I don't care who the guru is, the Dalai Lama or whatever, and you're going to hold them up to that standard, you're going to be disappointed every time. Because I don't think that's a state that is really attainable by human beings. Maybe a few people get there. You know, I certainly, I don't think that this, I believe in the story of the Buddha overall, but you know, I just think the, the healthy way to view these things is actually, I don't like the term enlightenment. I like the idea of waking up. And that is the term of Buddha means awakened one. And yeah, it's very Sam very Harris Sam Harris. well, Sam Harris gets <laughs> it from the term Buddha, which means awakened one, right? And I think what we can just, the goal for us is just to become more and more awake, less reactive, more compassionate so that those things happen less and less of the time and the negative things happen more the positive things happen more when the negative things arise though we're not averse to them and we're willing to sit through them and we're willing to go through them because we also accept that that's part of life but i think the whole the attachment to not only altered states with psychedelic folks There's attachment to ideas of enlightenment. There's attachment to ideas of samadhi. And I just think it has to do with, you know, it's the same thing you make fun of conservative Christians for about heaven. You know, it's you're projecting a fantasy. Yeah. Don't you think it's some sort of a derivative of a Christian moral where you have to get to heaven? Because a lot of these new agers nowadays, they don't have a, I guess, Christian faith, but I would argue that most of them grew up on a Christian faith, right? A lot of people in the 60s or even people today, like they have Christian parents or something of that nature where there is an ultimate goal. If you behave this way in life, then you would be rewarded for it. Even the whole notion of karma, like in the modern hippie world where, oh, if I don't, I mean, in the Indian world, it's not really like that, right? They don't really accumulate. I mean, you don't, it's not like you see something, I mean, you see an old lady on the street and you kick her over and you have bad karma and you'll be, you, you'll get the exact payback for it a day later. It doesn't work like that in the Indian tradition, I don't think. I mean, you, you can correct me on that. I think people in Asia really do, and I'm not going to speak to India, I can tell you in Thailand, people... I mean, they really believe in the idea of merit. You know, that's the term for it here, kind of accumulating merit. And you go and do good deeds and you accumulate good merit and bad deeds. And I 
I think that is quite right, Sped, but I actually think it's not from a Judeo-Christian thing. I think, as Peterson would point out, it's totally archetypal, right? In every human society, and I think it goes back to basic human psychology, uh, there's always been some kind of an afterlife. Even Buddhism, which doesn't have a theism, it built on Brahminical Vedic ideas, which ultimately talked about right karma and you're reincarnated. And I think there's just this idea, and it's it's not this simple, it's many things, but obviously part of it is we're afraid of dying. We're very attached to our little egos, and we don't like the idea that life ends here. Even if it means the next life is going to be worse because we have bad karma, you know, it's like, well, at least like I'm still in the game. You know, I've got a shot at it. I think part of it goes back to the fear of death. I think part of it goes to the need to enforce a moral code saying that if you, it's a way of holding people accountable because if you don't think there's any kind of afterlife, some people take that as an invitation to nihilism. And I'm not saying that's the inevitable conclusion, right? And that's like an argument against atheism, full stop. I don't believe that. But I do think part of the reason religion was constructed was as a, and even the notion of an afterlife was as a, a way of enforcing morality in that respect. So I think it's many reasons, but I think those are a couple of the two big ones. And that's why we see pretty much every society on earth has a form of religion, including some kind of afterlife or some belief that the spirit doesn't die with the body. Yeah, it's very true. And I think we're all scared of dying and we want some reassurance when we leave this planet to go to a better place. And it doesn't really make sense all that much because wouldn't you think about investing in your afterlife and doing more good deeds if karma is real? But a lot of people would choose the shortcut route. They would choose to live this life to the, I guess, not to the best extent that they can into aiding other people and yourself and the world and collecting good karma but also, but just to be selfish and to spread negativity. But yet, that is actually a bad investment for your next life if karma is real because you'll be reincarnated in a worse place. So I don't know, man. <laughs> this is a really weird subject, right? Because nobody knows really what's going on. And you have a lot of religious texts telling you this is what's going on. But I mean, I question those texts all the time. I'm like, well, how do you guys know this? Just because it's been written on a piece of lambskin for a couple thousand years doesn't mean that it's true. And I actually talked to my teacher about this yesterday. Like, how do people, how did these people come up with these things? Is it because of psychedelics? Is it because of a meditation where they've seen some things? And are those revelations valid? Because I would argue many times that a lot of psychedelic visions aren't valid at all. And I have proof because a lot of people I have on, a, on my podcast are straight up delusional. I'm not going to say who. You guys can listen to the show if you guys want to. But there's a lot of people that talk like they're crazy. And I asked them, well, how do you know this? Like, how do you come to this conclusion? Because they're telling me these things like it is gospel, right? Like they actually know something. Like they've actually seen something. And maybe they have. But how do you validate those visions that you see? in your trip, whether it's in a float tank or meditation or psychedelics or some near-death experience. I know it feels real, but you can't make that into a blanket truth statement 
just from your own personal subjective experience. You have to validate this this thing with other people. I mean, science has a, uh, what do you call that? The cross-referencing that they, they do. Like peer reviewed. Yeah, peer review. Yeah, like we don't have peer review in, right. you know, in religion, right? So, so how did these people come up with these ideas is what I'm asking. It's because like, just because these ideas are old doesn't mean it's valid. But yet a lot of people believe in them. And a lot of people tell me crazy ideas on my podcast, and I don't believe them whatsoever. But let's say that person maybe is 5,000 years old and written that same statement on paper, you would be more likely to believe it, right? So I guess my point is, like, I'm trying to question the validity of, you know, these these beliefs and trying to find out where they origin at and why are we so captivated by these ideas and why pretty much people all of the world believe in some religion and some form of religion or another. Even if you're an atheist, even if you're a nihilist, you still believe in something. It's still a belief, right? So I don't know, man. It's really complicated. It is. I mean, I, and obviously, you know, as Peterson would say and, you know, Jung, I mean, people need it because of order, right? They need some mental map for making sense of the world and for also like calming that sense of fear, downregulating their nervous system, right? I mean, it's not just fear of death, but that whole structure around not only religion, but what your culture teaches you, like that gives you order and it's, it is oppressive, yet it also provides a sort of buffer against the oppression of nature as well. You know, it, it provides an important effect of providing you kind of coherence and structure and, and boundaries, which are helpful. So there's this tension between like tyranny is inherent in order, right? Um, and that's kind of an inevitable part of it. But you alluded to something that I, I've been, this has just been on my mind a lot recently. And once again, this is totally universal. And this is something that psychedelics and yoga should teach us. But the ego is so subtle. We see these trends always reinforced in the yoga community or psychedelics. But just right now, there's a, I know people are always certain about things, but I'm, I'm really from, and who knows, you know, it's maybe just what I'm seeing through social media or the things I'm reading. There's no question there seems to be a spike in tribalism, especially what we're seeing in, in the US, you know, where both of us are from. And the, the real issue here is certainty. You know, the problem is, when people are so certain of something, and it doesn't matter whether it's about your religion or it's your political ideology, there's no incentive to listen to other people if you already know all the answers, right? Why would you even bother, right? You don't need to listen to other people because you have an ideology and the ideology explains for you how the world works. And now you don't listen to other people. And that is... It's obviously corrosive, right? Because if we're not listening, we're not cooperating, we can't be part of a collective together. But it also just, it dupes us, right? You see it on an individual level with yoga. You know, people will talk about getting into yoga because it leads to this sense of balance or, or psychedelics, right? It, it broke their paradigm and it gave them a, a new way of looking at the world. And all of a sudden, before you know it, the ego is very subtly grabbed onto it. And it said, yes, now this is the gospel. It wasn't the gospel before, but now LSD is the gospel. No, you don't practice yoga that way. You practice trikonasana this way. No, you're not doing it right. You know, 
it's that dogmatic thinking. And that's what psychedelics and contemplative practices are sp- supposed to help us let go of, right? Equin- equanimity and things like that are at the heart of a lot of these traditions, yet it's very, very hard to practice them. I, I'm not trying to set myself apart from this trend and say that I also don't suffer from this, but it, it helps to at least name it and say, let's be a little more self-aware people that we're falling into this trap again. I think it is important to have a sense of right and wrong in your beliefs. However, I think also you need to be open-minded to other ideas so you can make yourself better. Because if you hold on to your ideas so hard, your hands are so full that you're not able to take in new ideas. And the world is changing all the time and we have to change with it. And if we hold on to these old ideas, then they'll be outdated and we'll be wrong and will we be proven wrong. And I think one of the one of the, the examples you gave is like trigonasana, right? It's like, yes, it is important to do the trigonasana correctly because, well, I mean, the alignment of the body really matters. You want to get that correct so you don't hurt yourself. At the same time, everybody is different, right? So the way that your body is structured is different than the fat guy at the corner. So the way that you guys do trigonasana might be different. The fat guy might need a block. You might not need one. So we also need to take in new ideas because, you know, things are changing rapidly all the time, especially in our age of today, things change overnight. And I just find it crazy to hold on to any rigid ideas and to never let go of them and to stick to that as your main mantra. But I guess people want simple answers and people want simple solutions. And people don't want to think. If you notice the political spectrum of the left or right in whatever country, they're just lazy to think. And they're hanging on to this idea like it is their own identity and it is who they are. And they'll just grab on and subscribe to the bunch of other ideas that that party also subscribed to. So let's say you're on the left, right? And you, you must be pro-choice, you must be pro-gay marriage, you must be pro-anti-gun, you must be uh, pro-immigration. But what if I'm just pro-immigration, but I'm pro-gun? Like, what do, where, where do I land in the spectrum now? So people don't actually think for themselves. People think, oh, if I'm anti-gun, so I must be aligned to this side because, well, everybody else is as well. So it's an easy choice. It's kind of a cop-out for people. People are lazy to think instead of actually forming your own identity because people don't actually know who they are. People think they know who they are, but they haven't actually gone inside of themselves and asked, well, what do I really think about this situation? Instead of just watching CNN or Fox News or whatever the case might be, these propaganda channels where, where they'll shape you into this mode and that's how people can control you. And If you're an individual, if you're a free thinker, if you're actually thinking with your rational brain and your heart, you'll come to different conclusions than these modes of players that people want you to belong to. And it's it's a really sad thing, but also it's a natural thing because human beings are tribal by nature. I mean, we're we're just chimpanzees, man. (laughs) I mean, people fail to realize this, but we're just more evolved chimps. But some people can think clearer than others in some areas. 
And this also applies to me because I like to watch sports and I root for my sports team all day long. And it's the same thing. It's the same pathway, same pathology as politics where I don't have to think. I just have to support this team. And if good my team versus wins, evil. then that's it. Right. That's good. Us versus them. Right. But in sports, it's, more, it's less consequential because, well, at the end of the day, it's just sports. But in politics, there's actual consequences involved, right? So I think we have to make a hierarchy of things that we think are more important than others. And we should de- demand more time to give some thought into those things like politics or consciousness or awareness or your life. Like we should definitely spend more time to think about those things and see where we land in the spectrum. But in sports, it's literally just simulated warfare. It's literally designed for you to support this thing tribally so you don't have to be that way in other areas of your life. So, you know, I think this is natural, man. And to get upset over it is to be upset at nature. So (laughs) nowadays, I don't try not to get upset over it because I just realized this is human nature. And it doesn't mean it's correct. doesn't mean it's right. But... Once you accept that fact that this is the way things are and this was the way things were, then I'm okay with it. I find peace in it. You know, I'm so glad you kind of, you went there in terms of uh, talking about tribalism because the first part of your, your statement, I was agreeing with you. I was saying like, that's the ideal. But the problem is, and this really gets to the heart of the Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson debate, you know, where... I won't even disagree on several things, but I think this is an important one. And, and it's it leads to a lot much larger cultural difference too. And you and I, I think, have an appreciation for this because we've both spent time in the West and the East. But you know, there's this idea in, going back to the Enlightenment of individualism. And obviously Peterson is big on individualism too. This isn't just Harris, but that the individual is the root of everything, you know, but there is the problem is we're not on an island and we're not these one. The big difference between the two is I, Harris really thinks we're rational. And I think Peterson ultimately thinks that. And you should read, by the way, since I know you're so into Peterson and he talks when he, he's talking about dominance hierarchies and evolution. You've probably heard him reference Franz DeWall, the primatologist. I've been reading some Franz DeWall, highly recommend doing that. Brilliant guy. And you're going to get a lot more Peterson's ideas when you read DeWall. I mean, it's obvious Peterson got a lot from him, but DeWall explains so much. And DeWall's thing is he agrees with David Hume's point that reason is the slave of the passions. And a lot of research, when you think about it, a lot of what we're knowing from psychology, so Jonathan Haidt, who I know you also are are a fan of, is definitely in the school of thought, as is Daniel Kahneman, right, who won the Nobel Prize for thinking fast and slow. The real way that things happen is react on a gut emotional level, and that's how we form our intuition. Then we use our intellect to justify our actions based on our intuitive conclusion, right? And the problem is, One, we're not very rational. Two, we're not really individual. You know, we're so interdependent with our environment and with each other. We're tribal people. And and I kind of agree with that, man. I I don't think it means throw in the towel, but I've come to accept that. And I have a lot of I have a lot of questions, frankly. I used to think like we've got to transcend tribalism, this or that. I don't think we can transcend it. Maybe there's some hope that we can expand our notion of tribalism to like at least the same species that we're all humans. 
let's hold out hope for that's possible. But you know, so many of these things, and you hit the nail on the head when you said identity. So much of it is about people want identity. You know, that's why people are uh, into their religion or their political ideology or whatever it is. And it's not really rational for people. People like feeling like they're part of a group. They like feeling self-righteous. And I just think that while I'm very optimistic in many ways about the rise of reason, as Harris and Steve Pinker would talk about, I'm also very optimistic about growing interest in yoga and contemplative practices. To be honest, and I don't mean this as a cynic, I don't foresee the day when most people, whether it's through meditation or whether it's just through reason, are just going to be like rational individuals who aren't driven by emotions and aren't succumbed to tribalism. I, I don't think we'll ever get past that. And I just think we have to accept it, you know? Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Joe Rogan say something the opposite the other day where he, he talks about the rise of the internet and how slowly but surely we'll grow out of the tribalism. But I think it's going the opposite direction where Rogan is saying because with the internet, we have a bunch of sycophantic people selling us these things that we want on our ads. I mean, the ads are tailor-made towards what we want. And it doesn't end at Amazon. It ends at, I mean, it starts there, but it also p extends to political stuff or ideas. So if I click on a Peterson YouTube link, you know, there's other related Peterson things that are happening on my Facebook or on Google or anything else. So it's like, you're more in a bubble now than ever before because, well, before you had to interact with the world, right? Today, I can work from home and earn a stable income and just interact with myself and other people online. Those, the, and those people online could think the same way that I do. So it's like, are we escaping tribalism with the internet? Maybe we aren't at all because we are more insulated now than ever before. And I think tribalism, like you said, is innate. It's part of who we are. I mean, we're chimpanzees. We like to be part of a tribe. I like to be a sports team fan. I mean, I have these shirts and hats that represent my sports team. I like that. Who's your team? And I what have this awareness. <laughs> I'm just Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay, right That's on, man. I respect that. <laughs> He's one today, by the way. I love watching but anyways, them, <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, you know, it's like I'm aware of these things. I'm aware of the tribal sides of humans but yet i still play the game because it's enjoyable it's like having sex it's like what kind of what what kind of action is this right it's like some animalistic thing where two animals get together and hump i mean literally i mean if you look at it rationally if you're an alien that landed on a planet yesterday and you look at how human beings have sex and how much we give into sex and how much we center around business advertisements around sex and when you look at sex itself, it's just two human beings humping. Well, how rational is that, right? Like, really, how rational is that? That is our animalistic side. That is our biology. And same with sex. Tribalism is also the same way. So there's no way to get around it. I mean, people that want to transcend tribalism, it's just delusional, in my opinion. It's like we can have an awareness that when we're being tribal and when we're hurting other people, being tribal. We should definitely build an awareness around that and be more mindful about that fact because 
most of the time when we're hurting other people online or in real life or when we're arguing with our family over Thanksgiving, it's because of tribalism. It's because we stand for one team and they stand for another. As long as we have a control over that in our minds about not lashing out other people and hurting other people because of our tribalism, I think we'll be in a better place. But I think at the end of the day, we'll never have a planet Earth without countries, with without borders. We're, we're always going to be tribal. That's just how the game is written. So we can either ignore that fact that this is how the game and the program is written, or we could acknowledge it and accept it and work within it. I think it's just human nature and biology. It's how, we, how we're set up. And I like what you said about Peterson and Harris, like they're big into individualism. And I think they realize that we are tribal beings and we have to get back into our individualism. It's like going into enlightenment. We'll never achieve that state, but we can get better at it and better at it. And as long as we're trying, then I think we are trying to control that fact that we are being tribal and and decreasing the tribal points in our in our programming. But Will we ever delete the tribal trait from our computers? I don't think so. Yeah, it's something, I mean, I could add it to the long list of things that I genuinely grapple with as I try to reconcile, you know, so much of what I've learned from Western culture and Eastern culture. And I'm there's so much wisdom in both. And it both goes to show, you know, everything has their shadow and their trade-offs. And when you take something too far, there are problems. You know, I would say on the one hand, I really do believe in the Western idea of tracing rights back to people on an individual level, because I think what happens when you privilege things, when you view people in terms of groups, not individuals, you know, we see what that experiment looks like, I think, in Maoist China and Stalinist Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Even today, on the left and the right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. It, it's alt-right. Or, it's identity or politics people, on the or black left. people. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. White nationalism, black right. nationalism, you know, none of it's good, you know? And I think that the, the West genuinely has it right there in terms of locating the rights in the individual. Yet at the same time, one thing I've learned from Asia and really also just kind of like seeing things up close and personal, an example of this with like my, my wife's family. And of course, Every family is different within different cultures, and that's important to acknowledge, but there are big cultural differences between how things are done with families, how things are, how children are raised in somewhere like Asian countries versus the West. And we think it's automatically better because we have more freedom. But I have to say, I think we've become too individualized, too individualistic. And I think that it's no doubt at all that so many of the problems that we see in the West in terms of, in particular, a spike of the lot, lot of mental health disorders, such as anxiety and depression, is a result of our disconnection. It's a result of our lack of connection, A, to our natural environment, like not having enough access to nature not having enough access to sunlight, like literally these are physical and physiological things like in that you're supposed to like have dependence on your environment. And then the other thing is also just lack of connection to human beings. There's actually a good book on this now by um, Johan Hari called Lost Connections, which is worth reading. He's the same guy who wrote Chasing the Scream, which is a good book about the drug war. But I think that a lot of Western problems can be traced to just being too atomized, 
you know, and two off on our own. And I think we have this, it's funny, I, I've come to notice it in myself too. Like sometimes I have to like pick up on when I'm like, want to do things by myself and be, and there's nothing wrong with some alone time, but I'm like, actually, is that the healthier thing to do? It's actually probably healthier to like, you know, spend some time, you know, with larger groups of people. But we would, we view things as like the nuclear family's everything, right? You don't do all this different stuff with your cousins and your aunts and your uncles. They don't live right next door and you're, they're not like constantly stopping over at your house. And we view that in the West as like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you know, I want some personal space. And I've been wired that way. So I'm not pretending that I'm I'm not deeply influenced by this. I am. But I've got to say, when you're viewing this in terms of evolution, it that way of doing things, the way that, frankly, the Western way of doing things is the exception. It's not the rule. And I don't think it makes as much sense in terms of our human nature. We're meant to be part of that larger tribe. Yeah. And I think the tribe is missing. It, that's because, well, I mean, here, let me correct that real quick. The The tendency to grapple or to gravitate towards the political parties or the tribalism is because we're missing that family, right? We don't have that immediate family that we can turn to whenever we are in trouble. And when we are missing the actual village tribe, we're looking constantly for that replacement. And some people find it in sports, some people find it in religion, some people find it in politics. And it's the same pathology that's being replayed. It's like people are lonely. People want somebody to talk to. People want to share ideas with other people. But we don't have that today because we have the nuclear family. And even the nuclear family is being destroyed these days in America, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of being looked down upon to represent a nuclear family class. So really, the, the West is kind of destroying itself by destroying the natural tribes that it has and replacing it with these ideological parties that are taking control of people's lives. And it's just, it's it's a really toxic kind of mindset, really, because in no way is it balanced. Like we're, we're chimps at the end of the day, and we need that, you know, 30 to 40 member tribe that we can turn to immediately when we're in trouble. But nowadays, we don't have that. And it's looked up, it's being viewed as a weakness to seek others for help, to seek others to talk to. Like you said earlier, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling sad, you turn to yourself more often than not than to your wife or to your family members. I mean, what was the last time you called your cousin and told him you were sad, <laughs> right? I mean, pretty much never. And how many people can you turn to for that in your life now? I mean, for me, maybe only one or two people, you know, maybe my girlfriend, my mom, maybe my brother, but that's about it. You know, I can't turn to anybody else. And it's a really sad thing because I think evolutionarily, when we were advancing in our human progress, like we had those people that we could turn to, we can rely on our family and our foundation for some stability. But now we don't have that. So we turn to other things that are easy to subscribe to, like a political idea or religion or anything, really. And as long as we're mindful of that, I think we can be in control better of those tendencies. But I think it's just a natural thing for us as human beings, again. You're absolutely right, Ed. And I was just going to say, you know, and there's actually even 
not only do we need to have someone to turn to, but the reason a lot of times we feel this depression, we need to turn someone is because we go back to our apartments and we're alone. You know, like the problem is when you do that, when you're by yourself, you have all that time to get lost in your head. When you're part of a group, when you're part of have other, once again, responsibilities, right back to Peterson's theme, it takes you out of your head, right? But when you're by yourself, you get very lost in thought. It's very easy to get self-absorbed in the story of me, you know, in which you're the cent- in which I'm the central character. And that's a lot of times where people have that downward spiral. So it's like not only is the tribe important because you have someone to turn to when times are tough, but it's actually a form of preventative medicine where you wouldn't even go into that mental in downward spiral to begin with because you'd be focused on other people instead of like, you know, off in the corner with your own problems. Yeah. And that's why I'm moving, partly why I'm moving in with my teacher because I feel like it's just better sometimes to have people around you, you know? I mean, I right now I'm stuck in my 200 square foot service apartment and if I open the curtains, I'll see the people across the building. So if my curtains are pretty much, you know, closed 24 hours a day and one, I don't have sunlight and two, I don't see anybody. And the only time I talk to people in my room here is when I do a podcast, right? So I just feel like it's, a really unhealthy lifestyle to have. And I really want to be a human being again. You know, maybe that's why I was so sad uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's because of this fact, like I don't have any sunlight and also I don't have anybody to talk to. I mean, I record this podcast by myself. It's a solo show that I have on Patreon and I pretty much only talk to myself for half an hour or 20 minutes. And I was telling the world or my Patreon supporters anyway how sad I was. And I'm just like breaking down on this podcast. And now that I realize it, maybe it's the fact that I'm lacking some human connection. I'm also lacking some connection to nature as well, because here I am stuck in a city alone with my thoughts in chaos. And it's a really, really hard place to find balance. And that's where I envy you so much because you live in Chiang Mai in such a comfortable environment. And you don't have to really drive 30 minutes or an hour to see nature. I mean, you walk down the street, you're kind of already in nature because I feel like in Chiang Mai, the city is built around the surrounding environments. That is very natural instead of a concrete jungle place here like Hong Kong. So maybe maybe that's why, man. It's like a negative feedback loop that we engage ourselves in. And it's very dangerous that we're not aware of it. And this is where I think meditation and mindfulness practice can help because even if we're stuck in this negative feedback bubble and loop, we can actually have some sort some sort of awareness of who we are and what we're thinking and snap out of it from time to time when we meditate because you could be anywhere and meditate and have that sense of awareness. And you know, I try medit I haven't meditated for a long time, man, but I think I'm gonna get back into it because I really need this, you know, like lately I've been really, really stuck in those thought bubbles and negative feedback loops and I've noticed it without meditation and I've seen this happening to my psyche and I thought to myself, you know, I can't keep introducing these negative things that I'm thinking about. I need to introduce some positive thoughts and it sounds like really new agey, 
But the other day, I talked to an, a really new agey person on my podcast, and she was like, you know, it's all about positive thoughts. And I'm like, at the time, I was like, that's some bullshit. You know, that's some new age bullshit. It's not just all about positive thoughts. There's way more to it than that. But I thought about it in the subway. And I was like, you know, it's the same thing. It's like I'm reintroducing something positive in my feedback loop. And maybe that would multiply. And maybe that would turn my situation around. And maybe just having a positive mindset would yield better results in the positive physical world. So, you know, while I don't think that it's just all about positive thoughts, I, I still think that it's important to have that positive mindset and to have that sense of mindfulness where you're aware of your, your, your negativity and you can introduce some positivity in that mix to restore order. So I think I want to start meditating again, man. And I think it's going to help me a lot because I've gave up meditating for about, I would say a year now. And previous to that, I was meditating for about three or four years, but I still carry some of those practice with me, even if I'm not meditating. Like I still have that sort of awareness sometimes and mindfulness. And I think if I start to practice again, it would enhance my mindfulness even more, you know? I would definitely encourage you to do that. And I'm a big believer in, I like all the different practices that you learn through yoga. You know, I think asana or vinyasa, the physical practice is really important. I think pranayama is really valuable. I think mantra is really valuable. But I also think that seated meditation in, in whatever form resonates for you. And I think actually using a number of different techniques from different traditions is, is great. But I think there's a lot to be said for becoming very still, you know, really having to sit there with your thoughts. We're always on the go, go, go. And it's great to do practice off the cushion, just like you want to take your yoga practice off the mat into your life. But I think that a lot of that kind of inner alchemy happens when you become very still. And one practice that you might find helpful, and I'd encourage listeners to try this too, I think one of the best meditation practices for me is just labeling thoughts, you know? And so some people will just teach this as even just labeling thinking when it arises, just noting thinking. And that's a nice way to kind of, you know, quiet the mind and, and come back to your breath. But I actually really like labeling very simply, like one word or two words, the specific thought, feeling, or mood that arises. So if you feel, you know, discomfort, just thinking to yourself, discomfort. If you feel anger, anger, lust, lust, boredom, boredom, you know, whatever comes up, just noting that to yourself. And then you note it, you come back to your breath, and then you're focusing on your breath. And then whenever a thought comes up or feeling, just noting whatever that is and just keep coming back. And then at the end of the practice, I'd strongly recommend having pen and paper right by your cushion. And as soon as you open your eyes, journaling. Even if you don't feel like you have something to write, just journal, write something. And that can give you a lot of insight, a lot of self-awareness into the quality of your mind and mood. Yeah, that's something that's really weird because I've been doing that a lot since I started the future authoring program by Peterson. I just bought a journal and I just start writing at the beginning of the day and also at the end of the day. In the beginning of the day, I write down things that I have to do or I want to do. 
and the end of the day, I kind of have a review of the day and how much I got accomplished. And sometimes I'll just write down my feelings, you know, like I'm feeling sad today or I'm feeling tired or whatever the case might be. And it's really weird when you write down the things on paper, something that's so intangible, like your feelings, right? Something that's so mysterious even. And you write down on paper, it almost makes it really concrete. And you can review them in a rational manner and ask yourself questions that you haven't asked before. Like, why am I so tired? Or why am I so angry over this situation? It doesn't make any sense at all. So it's almost like you're inputting a sense of rationality in your irrational brain. And it's a really helpful exercise, I think, for mindfulness and also getting work done. Because at the end of the day, when you don't finish your work, <laughs> you feel bad about yourself. So, you know, I really recommend journaling, although I've been slacking off with that as well. <laughs> I think I stopped journaling for about a couple of weeks now. I was on a roll when I was in Hawaii, but ever since coming back, I kind of, kind of got lazy and Thing, I mean, everything was thrown out of order just from moving from house to house. I think this is my second place that I'm living now in two months or in a month and a half, and I'll be moving again. So there's not a lot of order in my life, but I think that's when I need to journal the most because that's when I have the most chaotic feelings and inner turmoil, and that's when I can actually put some order to this mess is when I can write th these things down. I can write these feelings down because I get a lot of anxiety, man, whenever I move. I don't know what it is. Even when I, before I fly, I get, I just have like massive anxiety. And I had this, these anxiety attacks over the span of two weeks and I didn't journal and I should have been journaling because I could have wrote down the things that I was feeling and analyze it rationally. But I think sometimes when you're having that tough of a time, when you're really deep into chaos, you don't have that stability to even do those things that you you know would make you stable. Does that make any sense? It's almost like it's almost like you're drowning and somebody's trying to save you and you're just kicking them away. Like, no, let me drown, let me drown. I don't know, something weird about that. Maybe it's like some sort of a self-sabotage, but I'm not sure. Uh, I think we just get stuck in ruts, whether it's like a, you know, a negative thought loop or, you know, physically or bad routines. But, you know, Peterson is is big on the importance of routines. And so is Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss is actually the one who got me into having a solid morning routine. And I wrote a blog post on this. I'd be happy to share it with you and, and the listeners, you know, sort of what my morning routine looks like. But I found that immensely helpful for really just you know, it's like a standard, I think Tim calls it like a standard boot up sequence, just so you know, when you get up, like you're on autopilot, like you don't have to think about what you're going to do. Like I know that I'm going to go downstairs, I'm going to make myself tea, I'm going to journal, you know, then I'm going to go for a walk, then I'm going to do yoga or qigong, and then I'm going to do sit down for my seated practice and do mantra and pranayama and meditation. And by the time that is over, I'm very grounded. You know, I'm very settled. And I think there's so much to be said for that. And even if you don't have that much time to do something like that, even having a, a more abbreviated basic routine is great. And also, I've come to appreciate more recently, and it sounds like you, you get the need for this too, because you've been journaling at night, but some sort of nighttime routine as well can be very helpful, including helping you to feel more settled before you, you get to bed, but also maybe reflecting 
for the next day. And I think this is part of the help of journaling. It's like there's something therapeutic about just getting those thoughts out of your head. You know, so for example, doing that at night before you go to bed, getting those thoughts out on the page so that when your head hits the pillow, you're not swirling those thoughts around in your head thinking about things. It's like, nope, I put those down. You know, they're right there. I can come back to them tomorrow if I want to. But there's something really helpful about getting those thoughts out of your head. Yeah, I think this is where I mess up because before I go to bed now, I'll read Solzhenitsyn about the Gulag Archipelago and it's dark, man. It is so dark. And I don't know, because I guess that's the only time I, I really want to read. But, you know, I know those readings can be so beneficial to me, but I'm not sure if that's the best time to read those books because I'll go to bed and I'll have those thoughts in my head and sleep and wake up the next day still having those thoughts in my subconscious. And I don't know, it might be a bad habit of mine, but I think one of the reasons why I got thrown into chaos is because I do have a really strict morning routine where I'll eat two eggs, I'll drink a coffee made a specific way, and I'll work out with the kettlebell and I'll do yoga. And when I got to the hotel, you know, all of that got thrown out the window. So, you know, I was trying to swim and, and just float, but the current was so so strong that I couldn't really just I couldn't make it, man. I mean, I was I was really deep in in the deep waters, but once I got back my regular routine down bit by bit, I felt a lot happier. And I think you know, as human beings, we're a creature of habit. If you have any dogs, you would know that they love routines. And I think as human beings, like we're the same way, especially for me, because I've taken the uh, Peterson's Big Five Personality test and I got like 90 something percent in orderliness, which is really interesting because I think only like three or seven percent of the population has that high in that percentage in orderliness. And I'm a person that treasures orderliness a lot and I need things in order. I'm kind of a control freak, you know, and when things are out of whack, like I just lose my shit, man. (laughs) And it's a lesson for me because I know if I depend on those things too much, and if it's gone, I'm going to have a hard time. So maybe it's a good training ground for me to really learn to let go of some of the things that I think are integral part of my life when it really, really isn't. It's just is in my mind. But if I learn to let go of those things, then I would be more yeah. free of those burdens. Yeah, absolutely. I think routines, very important, you know. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, I know a little bit was about your practice and you kind of talked about it there in terms of meditation. I'm curious if you do any kind of pranayama or breath work, because that can be very helpful on physiological as well in terms of calming you and centering you. I actually don't do any pranayama, but there's a reason why I was having a hard time and maybe still am and in chaos it's because I needed it, you know. I, I think that it would be irrational for me to be not in chaos given my current situation. I mean, if you place somebody in my current situation and if they're perfectly calm and feel like everything is going to be okay and have no sense of urgency, that would be abnormal. So I think it's absolutely normal for me to be freaking out over my situation because if I'm not freaking out, if I'm not having that sense of urgency, 
then something would be wrong with me because I need to get my act together because I realize the truth. And the truth is my life is a mess. And if you know your life is a mess and you don't, and you still feel relaxed, you still feel like everything is, is okay with the world and the world is perfect, then maybe there's something wrong with you, you know? So I think this is normal. And I think this is part of the journey that I have to go on. And maybe that's a rational, rationalization on my part, but I'm okay with that. So I don't, I don't think that there's anything I could change in my practice or meditation or in yoga that can make me feel better because I think I'm in a perfect place where I need to be in terms of mindset because, yeah, if anybody was shoved in my situation, they would be freaking out as well. But it's also learning to find a peace within that chaos that's important. And I'm not talking about learning to find a peace so I don't have any sense of urgency and I don't need to do anything because I think there's a major difference there. And now it's more about finding a peace within the chaos and also knowing the work that I have to do that's in front of me and pursuing that with that sense of urgency, with the sense of importance because yeah like my future does depend on what i do next you know and the actions that i take and the attitude that i carry now a lot of people would mistaken having that sense of peace as everything is okay with the world like i'm in this situation and it is okay because the universe will sort itself out no no like don't wait for the universe like don't wait for some other higher power and delegate your responsibility there. Take on that responsibility. Like you have to grab responsibility by the balls and really make it your own. And I think throughout my life, I haven't been doing that. Throughout my life, I have been running away from responsibility, scared of it. And now I'm finally looking at it in the face and contending with it. And am I winning? Probably not, but I'm trying at least. And I, I know if I keep practicing, if I keep going at it every day, I know I'll win one of these days. So I think I'm in many ways, I'm in a place of chaos, but in other ways, I'm in a place where I need to be. You know, does that make any sense at all? It sounds like I'm saying two different things. No, no, yeah. no. I mean, it's a recognition that there are cycles in life and sometimes some cycles in life are going to be marked by order, some by chaos. I, it, those are better terms than good and bad as well in describing value judgments because not to say one's bad, it's the right thing at the right time. And you're just sort of recognizing what's real and embracing it, which is, I think, healthy. One thing I want to ask to kind of bring it full circle because we were talking about psychedelics at the beginning and sort of how your feelings have evolved a little bit over time and that we didn't get too into it was more about the psychic psychedelic community I, i'd be curious to know how your personal relationship or your personal use of psychedelics now what that looks like at this point in your life how it might be different and also like which of all these practices you know like psychedelics yoga, meditation, anything else, you know, floating positive psychology, what really feels pertinent to you, really relevant to you right now, and what's not as relevant to you right now and why? I think many people would be surprised to hear the answer, but actually taking the psychedelic drug itself, like mushrooms or acid, isn't as relevant to me as before. Nowadays, I would prefer to smoke DMT because 
from time to time, I think I needed to be reminded of the beauties of the world. I think DMT can really bring that to me and show me how magical, how mysterious this road is and how much I don't know. Versus with mushrooms, it's more of an agent of decentralization, like I talked about before. It makes you question so many things on a fundamental level, which is something that I don't really need now because I've had that in the past few years. And some would argue it's been happening too much then in a way that I was deconstructed to the core. And I was a moral relativist and I didn't believe in anything. I had to question anything and everything at the most core value. And I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what the world was and I was lost and I couldn't function in this society. And what's relevant to me is Peterson and his work about finding meaning because a lot of people don't really have a good grasp of what Peterson's work is about. People think it's about cleaning their rooms or the pronoun thing. But ultimately, I would say that his message is about finding meaning. And he lays down a groundwork by saying that the world is suffering. And it's a very Buddhist philosophy, right? He said that the world is suffering and you have two choices. And both of those choices in your life are going to be shit. It's either going to be shit one or shit two. So it's up to you to choose which option. But either way, it's not going to be fun. But it is your job to find meaning within those choices. It is your responsibility to take on the burden of life, which is where I'm at now, and facing it with the truth and aligning yourself with the highest truth and aligning your actions, your body, your thoughts in that truth. And that truth will set you free. And not only will you set you free, it will also give you that meaning that you can use to endure the suffering that is in your life. And that's why I think that the notion of finding happiness or bliss is the ultimate end goal in life is bullshit because it is not. That is not the right way to me to go about life because happiness can be taken away from you at any second. Happiness comes and goes. It fades away. But what you can do is find meaning and also find the peace within all the suffering that's happening in the world. We can lose our shit in any moment. That is the easy way to go. That is a lazy way. That is a responsible way. But it is the brave way. It is the strong path. It is the path of the warrior that you can look at all the suffering in the world and in yourself and align to the truth and be okay with it, be at peace at it, and to keep working on ourselves and our communities in a way that can build us further and, and stronger and, and help each other out and help ourselves out so that we can endure the pain that is in our lives because the pain is always going to be there. It's constant. Happiness comes and goes. And we can either find meaning within it all, find peace within it all, or we could just be a nihilist or, or some person that hates life and cries every day. And to live in that truth is a really painful thing at first, because you have to acknowledge that these things are happening in the world and within yourself. But also, once you get past that stage, which I think I'm doing now, you can maneuver through that and you can find meaning and little victories within those battles. And I think this is where I'm at now is where 
I'm reconstructing myself and aligning myself with the highest truth so that I can live a better life. Not so much about the substance itself or yoga practice itself. I think those are great tools that can lead us there, of course. But also having this as an underlying mindset above or, or below the psychedelics or yoga and having that mindset to do yoga, to do psychedelics, to do mindfulness practice is to me right now is the highest way to go about it, to live life. Does that make any sense? It, it does. Yeah, I definitely follow you. You know, what I want to know, and this could perhaps be a good ending note is, you know, what does what you just said, how do you envision that, you know, unfolding for you? in the near to immediate term. So what does meaning look like for Ed Lu, you know, in the near future and in, in practical terms, what kind of vocation or what kind of actions are going to, you know, give your life meaning and, and how, yeah, just say that on a personal level first, actually. Well, first of all, I just want to help myself <laughs> first and foremost, right? Because yeah. I mean, I got out of the job and the job that brought nothing to me. I mean, it didn't bring me any happiness. It didn't bring me any meaning. It didn't bring me any money. And I thought it was enough. So I quit that job and I found something that I'm really passionate at. And I think that yoga can really bring service to other people that seek it. And, you know, I'm pretty good at this yoga thing. And I have a good teacher. I have a good people around me that are yogis in the yoga community. And I thought to myself, if I offer this as a service to the people around me and it can help other people, it can help myself, it can make me understand more about other people and ultimately more about myself. And also I can help people live healthy and align to their truth through yoga. I thought that would be, you know, it would just be the, the meaning that I could live with to endure the suffering because I mean, I, I was thinking if I die on my deathbed and think about my career, just sitting behind a computer on a desk, crunching words and numbers for somebody else that ultimately means nothing. I mean, you're just contributing to the bottom line for somebody else. Is it really a service to other people? Not really. Is it a service to a community? Not really. So do I want to live that kind of life? I don't. And it's all about finding the thing that you like and also the thing that you're good at and making that into a service for other people. And for me, I think that's yoga for the time being at least. And if I can offer a service that can make other people better and can make myself better and can input meaning into the world for other people and myself, and also happiness as well, and also liberation in the body, liberation in the mind. I think I'm doing a good job. And that's what I'm trying to do now is offer that to the world. And hopefully the world would want that from me as well. And yeah, I think you're on the same path as well. I mean, you know, you're, you're one of those, the people that inspired me to really take a look at yoga as a career whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we'll, we'll find out. But I think it's a meaningful pursuit because ultimately you're helping other people to help yourself. And it's a positive relationship you have with other people. And you can honestly ask yourself this question, like, is this a net positive in the world or a net negative? And I think with a lot of people sitting behind a computer on a desk right now in a cubicle, 
it's really hard for them to answer that question because they really don't know. I mean, meanwhile, it brings them money and it feeds their, their kids, their wife or, and their family. So that's good. But what kind of impact is it making in the world? Is it a meaningful impact? Is it just an impact that impacts other people's bank accounts? Or is it something that's deeper? Is it something that can make other people healthier or more free or have more meaning in their life? And I think with a job like teaching yoga, I know in America, it sounds like a really pussy thing, right? Like teaching yoga, like what are you, some kind of hippie? But if you're really in the industry, like you would know, like this is a, a thankless job, but you can find a lot of meaning from that because you see people grow, you see people transform, you see the happiness that's on their face when they're being liberated from their stress, from their daily work. You know what I mean? And that to me is something that I can find meaning in. And ultimately, working with other people in that intimate environment and relationship shows me a lot about myself and how I handle situations and how I would do if I were in their shoes. And, you know, teaching an art, you really, really get a better understanding of it because you look at it from a beginner's point of view all over again. Like you have to think in the student's point of view on how they would understand these things. And from teaching, you would actually understand the deeper philosophical sides of yoga, which is already happening to me. And I'm just like a beginner in all this, I mean, in, in teaching. So for me, man, it's been something that I'm willing to work at, you know, like I'm enduring a lot of suffering now, like I've been talking about for the past hour and a half, but it's all worth it because I find meaning in it. You know, I find something that I can... It makes me powerful on the inside, knowing that I can do all these things. Yeah, that's a great place on which to end. You know, it just makes me think of what we've talked about over the last hour and a half and kind of where you are in your journey. It just makes me think of that quote of the Gita that is often cited and posted on Instagram, but in other places, but for good reason. I, I love it too. It's, you know, yoga is the journey of the self through the self to the self. And um, it's I love how yoga is helping you to navigate, you know, that journey more skillfully. I just actually finished an interview with uh, one of my meditation teachers, who's a tantric meditation teacher and a, a swami herself for decades, a really amazing woman, Sally Kempton. And we talked about yoga and meditation as teaching us to kind of surf those waves of consciousness. And I think that's really what yoga is. It's it's learning to kind of surf those waves, to kind of ride those ups and downs. And uh, I'm so glad that it's been meaningful to you and helpful with you and your journey. I'm so glad if I've had any kind of positive impact whatsoever. And I hope you feel that you can reach out and we can talk whenever about things trivial or or important. And I hope this conversation has been helpful to others. And, and I believe that it will be because I know a lot of other people are in a similar place. So I thank you for for opening up and sharing what's going on on such a personal level. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for having me. And I really enjoy our chats. As always, you always have something really cool to say. And every time we end a conversation, I gain a little bit from that, you know. And those are the conversations that I treasure most. It's not, not the really funny ones. It's not the really, I guess, data-driven ones. But it's the ones that make you think on the inside like oh wow what am i doing you know like it makes you question who you are and from that questioning you conclude with better answers and yeah this has been one of them man so thank you 
Cool. Do you want to give people a little info about where to find your podcast and things like that before we end the recording? Yeah, sure. So you get... You guys can find a podcast on psychedelicmilk.com. We're on Instagram, Psychedelic Milk. It's kind of a meme page, but it's more about a discussion about current psychedelic topics. And discussions are always good because it leads us to the closer truth. And you guys can also support a Patreon on patreon.com forward slash psychedelic milk. But basically everything is on psychedelicmilk.com. So let's go there and check it out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ed. Really appreciate it.